Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Well, we're off! We're off! And we're going. Ah, here we go. I was just saying tonight, oh, it's a long minute, you know. We get, we gear up and then, uh, we don't put gear on, you know, but we like uh, getting the right gear, the right mind space to, you know, do uh, uh, top level uh, broadcasting. Broadcasting. <laughs> and... <laughs> Um, uh, and I, you know, Matt said, well, two minutes to go, but he said it at one fifty-nine. and you go, no, one minute to go, and we waited for a minute, and then all the chat dries up. We stopped talking, because we were awaiting the start of the show, because it's mm-hmm. the unprofessional to just start it. No, yeah, there's no point in getting into a, a chat, is there, if we know that we're going to have to start radio broadcasting. Broadcasting, broadcasting, yeah. broadcasting, uh, like again. So um, here we, okay. Oh God, here, here we are. Do you know what? I, I'm knackered because um, I got um, the other week, uh, last Sunday, not the Sunday just gone, the Sunday before. Yeah. I got a trapped nerve somewhere Ooh. in my neck, right, and I could feel it from the base of my skull, yeah, yeah. all the way down my left shoulder blade all the way down to halfway down my left shoulder, like basically my shoulder muscle, right? And then down my back and then to the base of my spine. So that's been really painful. So I've been sort of like, um, sort of like trying to do, I've been going back to the gym, so I've been doing stretches and stuff. Yesterday I did, it wasn't really arm day. I'm so shit at the gym again. I'm basically starting from scratch, but I did some arm stuff. And um, when when you say arm day, right? Is that I know you can have arm day and leg day and all that. Is is arm day easier? What's the what's the significance? Um, they're all awful. But while you're doing arm day, you're thinking I can't wait for leg day. And when you're doing leg day, I think probably leg day is easier. Um, but I think I don't know. I think people don't enjoy leg day as much. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because you don't. You don't get to show off your legs as much. I think Maybe. that's right. When people like pull their like show their muscles off in their arms, and they're like, no one ever does that with your legs, do you? When I do, I do. When yeah. you, when you do a month in Edinburgh and you're walking up and down all them hills, then okay. you know, at the end of that, my calves are absolutely fucking uh, mooing. Like they are fucking huge calves. I'm very proud of my legs. Uh, the rest of my body is an absolute fucking car crash. But, so I've just started again. And I was really pleased with myself yesterday because I did the gym and then I was just like, oh, I thought my arms were going to be useless. But mm. no, I could actually, uh, and uh, they're, they're not like painful or stiff. And then at like two o'clock, I went to bed like at 10.30 last night. And then at two o'clock in the morning, you know, I moved and I put my arms under the pillow and I just woke up in agony and basically my arms were absolutely fucked, right? Um, I mean, only because of good reasons, you know, they're rebuilding the muscles and they'll be rebuilt. You've got to tear the muscle to build the muscle, right? And um, uh, But I'm not, I just want to lose some weight before I'm 40. And um, Too late for me. Well, you're over 40. So... You can't even learn to cook before you're 40. You can't do anything before you're 40 now, Um, which is fine. I'm just like, it's just a limitation. Do you know what I mean? 
But it's, it's nothing to be down about or depressed. I also think that I've been putting all of... Anyway, my point is, then I woke up early for a meeting and they haven't phoned. So I guess I'm not prioritised in their life, in their schedule. So that was a waste of time. So not only did I have a pain-filled, sleepless night, but I woke up early for no reason whatsoever. I did finish off these shelves for these... Um, Oh, nice. My DVDs, but um, they're way too small. I built, I got them to replace. I've got like these two um, fruit crates, and you can't see them. I've got these fruit crates that I keep my DVDs in, and I bought these shelves to replace them because I wanted them a bit more ordered and structured. And um, they're the wrong tools for the job, my friend. They're the wrong tools for the job. Oh, but I have to finish them off with my awful arms. So oh. that's been an interesting morning. Assuming the shelves won't uh, have all of the stuff from the fruit crates in them, or they're yep. too tall in that the DVDs are too tall for them. No, I bought them specifically to hold DVDs, so they can fit DVDs, but they, they can't fit as many DVDs as I need, and so they are ultimately mm. pointless. But the other thing, uh, wait, uh, before uh, we get into the show... The other thing I was thinking was, you know, I was, I've been putting a lot of pressure on myself. Obviously, this has been a, a, um, a bit of a write-off this year. I've got quite a lot of stuff done, like work done. But in terms of sort of like personal health and, um, you know, uh, exercise and all of that stuff, that sort of went out the window quite early on, and I'm sort of like just trying to get back into it. But like I say, I'm 40 this year, 40 in five weeks. It'll be four weeks by the time this comes out. Um, so I'm sort of... Um, I wanted to spend this year getting into peak poss- peak, peak physical... Peak possible weight. I want to get into peak uh, physical uh, fitness this year. Uh, th- before I was 40. Mm-hmm. And sort of, um, you know, be the best that I could be. Um, I still think that it's possible to get into some pretty good shape yeah. you know i'm eating healthy to be fair i don't eat that much anyway i just drink a lot but i'm eating healthy i'm not drinking uh i'm uh exercising uh the other thing is kind of like go to the gym i'm going because i'm getting back into it and i'm poor i'm going to the gym twice a week and then i realized that you actually have to do exercise in between that so i'm going to go for walks every day so that's good. Um, but the other thing is I put all this pressure on this date that's looming, that's on the horizon, that's been on the horizon for 40 years. <laughs> I put all this pressure on it. And I was realised that I was like really beating myself up about the fact that I'm not actually going to make my goal. And then I realised that, you know, I'm not going to die on my 40th birthday. You know, it's not like it's a work in progress, isn't it? And you just have to... I know, so what I'm thinking is... Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna really get into it and and get into sort of like a way of living, and then I'll continue that throughout my fortieth year. Okay. Like, it's also sort of like what you're gonna do for your birthday. You can't really sell a, you know. I know other people have had birthdays. I'm not like a year older, but I'm like six months older than a lot of my friends, and they've had sort of like birthdays in lockdown where they've been 39 and it's been sort of like a bit limp, and they've been like, well, we're not technically in lockdown, so I don't know. But I think that, you know, I can, I'm going to do something else. Do you know what I mean? I wanted to go away for my, for my birthday. 
but I think what I'll do is I'll go away at some point within the year mm. and I'll say this is the this is the thing but that's it but I'm tired I'm old I'm angry so, you're listening to Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. My name's Nick. I'm joined by... Nathaniel Metcalf. Nathaniel Metcalf, and you're listening to uh, Friday's Fan Club. Or Mondays, depending on what... It could be any day of the week that you're listening to it. Let's not get bogged down in the... Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Live your life. Do what you... Just listen to it when you bloody like. You can listen to half of it in the bath and the other half... In the bath the next week. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't think of another one. But, you know, it didn't, it didn't matter. Just as long as you are enjoying. Um, leave, leave those likes. Punch that subscribe. Hit that repeat. Um, and, uh, t- and what's the first rule of fan club? Tell your friends. Tell your friends about fan club. Second rule of fan club is... Please, for the love of God, tell your friends. Absolutely. And we've done it. Right. We're off. I'm slightly low. I'm trying to be high energy, but I'm slightly low energy because I'm basically my body is crippled, and um, uh, and I'm exhausted. So, Nathaniel, what have you been up to this week? Have you seen anything that you like? Seen far too many films, Nick. An embarrassment of riches. I've seen two films. Oh, good for you. That's the right amount, I think. No, no. I've been I've been rationing films to myself. Because I feel bad if I watch a film. Really, really all I want to do is just take a day off and just sit down and just watch films all day, every day. And that is that. I've even got three films that I want to watch or I need to watch for work. And I haven't got around to watching them. Um, Oh, but my laptop broke and I can't watch stuff off my laptop now. And my Sky remote control doesn't work. I mean, there's just no... Like all of the technology in my flat just doesn't work, and I can't do anything. It's oh god! It's just, what have you seen? I'll give you the lowdown. Blowout, the Lost Boys, the Equalizer Two. They'll love me when I'm dead. From Russia with love. Next goal wins. The other side of the wind. American Psycho Two. The Terminator. Yes. Um, what was the one that was They'll Love Me When I'm Dead? I've watched that. That's the one which is that Orson Welles documentary. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. Is that and about it, the making of the film that didn't get made? Yeah, and then I watched the film. And the documentary doesn't make you want to watch the film at all. Makes you think that looks hard going. Yeah. And I watched the film, and it's actually all right. It's fine. Quite funny. Oh, hang on. Uh, they'll Love Me When I'm Dead is the, is the actual film that the documentary is based on? No, the, the film's called The Other Side of the Wind. Right. Um, did you watch that? Did you watch that? Yeah. It was all right. Did you, did, you watch it, did you watch it first or after? After. So, hang on. The Other Side of the Wind is one of the films you've seen this week? Yes. Did you say that? I did. I think I was so caught on trying to remember... They'll love me when I'm dead. Oh, God. I can't even interview you. What are we going to do when the guest comes on? Um, okay, right. So, take us through it. All of them? Yeah. Well, that, so, uh, Blowout, I saw, which is the John Travolta, Brian De Palma film, as my ongoing Brian De Palma watch uh, carries on. 
It's the and best it's Brian De Palma. Probably the best, but it's it's certainly the most Brian De Palma. It's the ultimate Brian De Palma film. Yeah, I, I think last week, and I was really struck by how great Carrie is. But it's not necessarily like that. Feels like it's part a De Palma film and part like it does the, the fact that it's Stephen King adaptation sort of holds over it very. But not that it not that it cheapens it. I think Carrie is an incredible film. But what I would also say about Carrie is that, yeah, it's a Stephen King adaptation, so it sort of, like, loses some points. Not because Stephen King adaptations are bad, and it's it's one of the best ones, but just because it isn't pure de Palma. Whereas I would say Blowout hits that sweet spot between Alfred Hitchcock homage without really being directly based on an Alfred Hitchcock thing. And it's sort of, like, based on Blow Up, but I watch Blow Up, and they are quite different. Um, so it's sort of like inspired by stuff, which is what he does. Like, a, not really like an early Tarantino, because he sort of tries to, he tries to mix his, um, his inspirations up, um, a little bit more subtly, doesn't he? Whereas Tarantino's kind of like going, if you've seen these films, you'll get these references. Whereas De Palma's kind of like going, it's vaguely sort of like that. Mm. Um, and it's almost in style and things, isn't it? He's taking little... I suppose he does do that a bit. And I, I, Later the, that week, or this week, I've watched From Russia With Love, second James Bond film, which is mainly just a thing on a train. It's funny when you think of them as being big all over the world, and like most of the film is on a train. Um, I've never seen it. Uh, well, the villain in that is... Um, Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw. And he... His character apparently is what the John Lithgow character in Blowout is based on. And you watch it and go, you can't really see it, except he does have that watch. So that's what that watch is with the, with the wire, the killing. Oh, is that, yeah, is that where it's from, from Russia with Love? Yeah, that's apparently what it is. And apparently that character is based on the Robert Shaw character. But when you watch it, it's hard to tell. You wouldn't maybe, like, come to that. Maybe on the writing stage, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But as soon as you hire John Lithgow, it's like... Um, he let him do his own thing, surely. And also, that one of the nice things about that is he's kind of part of the government as being a bit of a government assassin, except you do get the impression he's sort of acting on his own as well, that he's more of a psychopath. He's not really... Uh, John Lithgow? Yeah. All right. John Lithgow or John Lithgow? Gow. No. <laughs> John Lithgow. I said, I've always said go, but I've heard it's pronounced gal. What do you say? I've always said go, but now I think it's gal, but I felt like an absolute dick for saying gal. I felt like I was, I think maybe it's an American pronunciation. Mm. Okay, right. So John Lithgow, right? He um, is really great in Blowout. All right, okay, so um, I've, I've, I was on holiday in Portugal and they had sort of like screenings in the evenings and I watched Doctor No. And Doctor No is sort of like... Doctor Now? Doctor Now. Um, uh, and I... Apocalypse No. <laughs> um, and I've watched it. And, uh, yeah, and it's, it's good. I watched a thing about the, um, the, set, the set design. He did all of the set designs. The guy that did the set designs, I think he did something crazy. Like he did all of the set designs for Doctor No 
including like these huge sort of like underground uh, villain lairs. He did them all for like 50, mm, fifth, was it 15 grand? Something like that, I think. It was something ridiculous. And Stanley Kubrick saw it and then he was like, oh, I'll get you to do Doctor Strangelove and do like the war room and stuff like that. And um, in Doctor No, there are these, um, uh, he's got this fish tank with these huge fish in it, right? And um, there's a line in it where Doctor No goes, oh, it's convex glass, so it makes the fish look bigger than they really are. And, uh, uh, oh, and then Sean Connery has, like, this one-liner about fish. Like, well, you're not the biggest fish in the room. Or something, you know, very clever. But it turns out that what happened was they had these, um, they wanted these big fish tanks in the lair. So they got these uh, projection screens and they uh, just needed, they back projected them um, on the set. And what they, they just had stock footage of fish. And um, they were goldfish, but they wanted them to be big. So they just, they just, (laughs) showed these they just blew up these huge images of goldfish swimming around in <laughs> dr no's lair and then dr no just goes yeah this the, the tanks magnified that's why they're big and they just wrote it into the script to explain why the fish were so big it's like um, well mr bond in case you're wondering why my fish look weird <laughs> and it's like it's, like, it's, it's insignificant it's also sort of like you never see the bad guys plans actually play out so so that we know that the screenwriters have done their work. It's just like, well, at some point they better explain what the plan is because they're never going to get to finish it. So, you know, we don't want people to think that we haven't done our part of the deal where we didn't bother coming up with a decent plan, but there's really going to be no other place to put it because he's going he's gonna to punch him in the face in a minute. Um, so we'll just tell, you know, it's, just, it's finding like an everyday, everyday solution to an out of this world problem um i don't know i'm so tired um so, <laughs> so dr no um dr no is sort of like a weird one because it feels like a basic bitch uh spy movie right oh by the way i've been using the phrase basic bitch all week just so you know um so it's such a basic bitch movie isn't it dr no and then uh, from Russia with Love was kind of like a step up, but then Goldfinger is obviously that. That's the third Bond, and that's like. I don't watch that. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm sort of trying to get my head around the Bond. Really, I've never like. I feel like I'm. I'm missing something, and I watched the first one, and the, the, they're all like. They're, I'm sort of watching them all like. Yeah, they're all all right. <laughs> that's it. That's like that's my whole take on it. I just watch them go, but they're quite oddly like the first two are oddly. They feel like British movies, and they're not huge budget movies either. No. They do feel like they're cutting, uh, yeah, lots of stock footage, lots of things, you know, plane stock footage of plane landing in an airport. Um, there's definitely some sort of foreign location shooting, but it's not to the extent they would become or not, and certainly not as big in scope at all. Like, as I say, like an hour of From Russia We Love is them on the Orient Express. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I must have seen From Russia With Love at some point. I don't remember. I don't actually, not that I don't remember the film. I remember Robert Shaw. I remember the train. I remember the t- title song. I remember everything. I don't remember ever sitting down and watching it. Do you know? That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to consciously watch these 
as individual films without the others getting in my way. Like, because they, they used to be on telly all the time. I'd probably dip in and out and see bits of them. And you can never remember which one. Yeah, this is this is Robert Shaw. He's got, you know, he's got his uh, cutthroat wire coming out of his watch. And it's got Rosa Klebb, who's the woman who has um, knives come out of her shoe. But it's difficult to watch James Bond films without the context um, or with the context of the series or without the context of all of the surrounding films. Yes. So just to watch them from beginning, like if you go through Dr. No from Mushroom Love, Goldfinger, to watch them in order and to watch the series slowly evolve, I think you can get to a certain point and see the series slowly evolve from one thing to the next thing. Um, and that's that's interesting to a point, but then it just gets to a point where they all sort of do start rolling into... I, I think if you think about them individually, you can go, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Live and Let Die was Roger Moore's first film. It was during a big spike in uh, black exploitation cinema. And so they set it with like uh, in, in New York and there was sort of like black cops in it and uh, there was like voodoo going on and you go, yeah, it's, it's like a product of its, it's like an exact product of its time. And like Moonraker was um, obviously 1978 or nine, just after Star Wars. Um, and there was like a point where James Bond wasn't really um, uh, influencing uh pop culture he was following it's like alice cooper when alice cooper first started in the early uh, in the early, late 60s early 70s he was like a, a, a trailblazer you know um people would see him and go we've never seen anything like this before and then you skip to the end of the 70s and he's lost and he doesn't know what to do and then you get to the 80s and he's doing new wave albums and he's kind of um trying to do whatever like motley crew or aerosmith are doing at the time he's just literally playing catch all the way up to the 2000s where he's done like a Marilyn manson album you know um uh, which is brutal planet it's an industrial metal album but um it's it's kind of like and it's sort of like that with james bond where where he in those first few films they were finding their feet and they were creating something probably inspired by a lot of uh, tv spy stuff um, <laughs> Well, what it feels like, it really does feel like that at that time, they really are pioneering. It does feel like there isn't really stuff like this before it. And it feels late 60s. It's like 62, 63, the first couple. And they're, they're so, so ahead of their time that they feel kind of psychedelic-y. And especially those kind of opening credit sequences, you go, right, what looked like this before this? I can't think. And when you think of stuff that looks like that, you think of stuff much later in the 60s. Because they're people ripping off James Bond. I mean, the title sequences for like the um, something like Fistful of Dollars is absolutely taken off our, um, a James Bond or something. It has that sort of look entirely. Have you ever seen the? Um, uh, well, here's another fact that I, uh, it wasn't. It's not. It's not James Bond. It's not um, Sean Connery doing the. You know the um, iris sort of scroll at the beginning when James Bond walks in and then he shoots down the barrel of the gun, which I didn't realise was a barrel of a gun for years. You go, are we looking at James Bond through the barrel of a gun? And then when he shoots, because that's what the spiral is. The spiral is the, the inside the barrel of the gun. And then he shoots it and then blood sort of like comes down the screen and you go, also oh, is blood coming down the barrel of the gun? I don't get it. Um, it's obviously, you know, uh, expressionistic. Um, but it's like, 
so so it's not it's not Sean Connery for the first three. I think it's Sean Connery's stuntman, and then he only comes in and does it after a certain while. I think he wears a hat in the first three. Yes, and then they get replaced. Have you ever seen Friday the Thirteenth where they do that? No. They did a thing where they were basically going. Um, I think it's Jason Takes Manhattan, whichever number that is. I think that's eight. I've seen that one. I think as well. Yeah. I think it might be eight, or it might, oh, or maybe it's five, it, or maybe it's a new beginning. <laughs> it's it's one of it's one of the it's one of the late ones where they've basically gone. Jason Voorhees is our James Bond. <laughs> and there's a bit where Jason Voorhees comes on from the side of the screen <laughs> and uh, he turns around and he throws a machete at the camera <laughs> and then blood comes down. And, you, and it's like, it's weird because it's kind of like a fairly, it's the eighth film. It's the eighth film. Um, oh, I like that. I think it's really funny because they obviously had a real sense of humour about themselves. They're just like, yeah, he's like James Bond. So we're actually going to do, and they only did it in one, but I would have been really happy if they'd done it in all of them, you know? All of the ones following that just gone, yeah, we've got to have the Jason Voorhees walk-on moment where he comes in. Like he's a mass, a mass, mass murderer. An undead, zombified mass murderer from beyond the grave. And he's got his own sort of like James Bond intro sequence. I think. Well, I mean, it's, you know, you do also get the impression from watching them that you, you also never got, which I think is one of the, the ways people sort of re-examine James Bond now and it's sort of part of the films. But in these early ones, you do just go... I mean, he is a bit of a prick. And he is, like, he's a hired killer, essentially. And he kills people who are sort of defenceless. So if, basically, if you're a baddie, he will kill you. And he'll just, and, and will kill you violently if you're unarmed or... There's lots of that. Like, people come in and like, oh, well, fair enough, Bond, you've got me. And he's like, bang, you're dead. And I'll shoot you multiple times. And it's all like... And you go, this is quite weird. I mean, I don't know yeah. if it's sort of changed a lot, but you do watch it now and you sort of bristle a bit. At, it seems weird that he's such the hero of these things. And he's... It, was, it was heroic, wasn't it? And it was, it was pre-Vietnam. Hmm. Uh, and it was kind of like violence was there for entertainment alone. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't really like a learning device in movies where... You show kind of like, I don't know, but certainly for stuff like Bond, it was like the entertainment stuff. And I think it was only later on when people have, you know, people's attitudes towards women were different. People's attitude towards uh, different races was different. Um, people's uh, attitudes towards violence and violence towards women and all of this other stuff, right? And so when you look at the first 20, 25 years of Bond, through today's eyes, the only way to really justify it any bit is to say, yeah, he is a psychopathic, abusive, alcoholic misogynist. And that is what James Bond is, right? Um, uh, you could, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that they could justify it at the time and go kind of like, Oh, no, it's just like another romp with our favourite hero. But, like, th times have changed to the point where that's what every franchise that goes on for 50 years. What, how many years? 50, 60 years? Yeah, well over 50 years. That so would be, like, yeah, nearly getting on for 60 years. So, I mean... I totally... People, I people's attitudes change. People's attitudes evolve, right? But a franchise is not a person. Mm. It's a snapshot of the time that that movie was made. Yeah. Doctor No can't evolve, right? From Mushroom Love can't evolve. Whatever politics that film was going for at that time is in that film right now. 
and you can retroactively change that. But basically, what's happened is the franchise has had to evolve like a human would. Like, a, are you sort of go? Is this always the case, or is this something that gets lightened up as it goes on? And you're just not sure. You go, so it's like going, oh, blimey, he really is like. Um, I think it lights up. I think it lightens up with Roger Moore. Just, I don't think he kills any less, but I think he's much more flippant with it all. Yeah, so you like go, it's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, um, but he doesn't ever. I mean, he doesn't always go all out comedy, and sometimes he has some actual moments. You know, um, Roger Moore. I just don't really. Um, I guess. I guess the problem with James Bond for me is that it's boring. And I just think it's one of them things where you're watching a James Bond film on ITV and then there's an ad break and you don't mind so much. Mm. You just think, fine. I think that, um, that because they're not Alfred Hitchcock films, right? If you, if you sit down and you watch like a suspense thriller and it's Alfred Hitchcock and you go, oh, it's incredible. Uh, it's a piece of art. Um, but it's not. It's like it's it's like this long ongoing franchise, and they had good directors, but not the best directors, and they weren't sort of visionary directors. And so you're kind of like, it's just part of this ongoing franchise with slow bits. Mm. And once you get, it, I don't find the things in James Bond entertaining. I don't find like oh, oh God, I love it when James Bond has sex with a woman. Go on, Bond. I'm not like at home cheering along do you know what I mean that's not like um same I don't really I don't know it just almost feels like I always think because I like lots of films that are like James Bond knockoffs and things I like the idea of spy films and super spies and I always think oh I should like this I should like it more and and I'm not I don't not like them but you watch them and go yeah all right yeah I preferred the um I preferred the Guy Ritchie uh Man from Uncle, mm. a lot more than I would say over 50% of the James Bond films. And yeah. the Timothy Dalton ones, I really like Timothy Dalton, but I cannot be fucked to sit through those films, you know. Yeah. Um, especially when they go, well, Living Daylights. I mean, it was very violent because uh, they licensed to kill. It was very violent because it was made around the same time as the uh, Lethal Weapon movies and it was trying to keep up with Hollywood. You go, I'd rather watch Lethal Weapon. Mm. Like, I'd say, you know. They're kind of like also runs when it comes to that. They only exist as watchable films in kind of like if the only other films that you're watching are Bond films. Yes, yeah. I think that's it. I think maybe, I think if you were of that generation that grew up in the 60s, they really didn't feel like anything else. And so many other things were rip-offs of them. Um, and I think afterwards, you know, by the time it hit the 70s, they're trying to, I mean, they're technically bigger films than most of those exploitation films. But they're still, oh, yeah, but they're huge. They're much bigger, much bigger. They're still chasing that audience or trying to keep relevant, I guess, constantly right up to the 90s. And it's sort of weird now that you think of like, how huge James Bond films are again and how much money they make is extraordinary. And it makes, you know, they're as like a, a corporate entity now. Those Bond films are almost like Marvel movies or something. They'll never, they're such a big deal for MGM and sony and things that yeah but then also when they were making the pierce brosnan films they would always kind of like um you know all the tabloids would always like take photos of them going down the thames on speedboats and stuff and like giving us spoilers and i was like who gives a fuck who's this for it's like it's like because it's 
what, the British film industry, is it? Or is it MGM? You know, which is Hollywood, you know? It's like, it's like, it's kind of like they're trying to drum up some sort of kind of like jingoistic support for a franchise, which is just kind of like, who gives a, who gives a fuck? I, I like Daniel Craig. He hates playing Bond. Stop making him play Bond. He doesn't like it. He doesn't want to do it anymore, right? Um, I'm sure they pay him so much money that he has to go to the gym, but fucking hell, it's just like he hates it. Uh, and also, how old was he when he signed on? He was older. He was quite old to play a young... He was meant to be a young Bond, but he was quite old at the time. He was mid-30s. So what's he now? He's sort of like in his late 50s. You go, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to do it anymore. Or early 50s, maybe. Maybe he's in... If he was in mid-50s. So when was the first one? 2004, 2005? Something like that, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Just Yeah, because I think it was 2004. And then they they released uh, the next one, Quantum of Solace. He's 52 now. They released Quantum of Solace in January 2008. And you go, why not? Why not? December 007. Why don't you just do it one month earlier and you could have used that on all the marketing. You'll never have that fucking opportunity again, you fucking idiots. I'm just infuriated. I don't even care about the franchise. It just infuriated me. That upsets you. Oh, it's the marketing more than anything, yeah. But yeah, I've never really... And, you know, and I loved... um, When I was at school, I loved The Prisoner. Mm -hmm. I loved uh, The Man from Uncle. And I loved uh, Mission Impossible TV series. Yeah. Those three TV series I thought were great. And um, oh, and the Invisible Man with um, what's his name? Uh, what's his name again? David McCallum from yeah. Man from Uncle. David McCallum from Man from Uncle. Yeah, the Invisible Man was great. Um, I was singing the theme tune to that the other day randomly, and I thought it was something else. And then I just was like, oh no, I've just remembered what it is. I'm exactly the same though. All these things like Man from Uncle. And the prisoner, um, and the the Avengers, the TV Avengers are all things that basically were like people go, no, let's do like a knockoff of Bond or whatever, but we'll just add something or have a different element to it. They and all feel like, more intelligent. Yeah. They all feel much more intelligent. Whereas Bond yeah. is kind of like, well, you got to have the Bond girls, haven't you? You got to have the uh, you got to have the, uh, the, uh, the tropical islands. You got to have the you got to have the villain. You go, well, you're basically making the same film over and over again. Yeah. Whereas. The Prisoner was this incredible series that sort of like evolved over the thing. And uh, yeah, Man from Uncle's Devil. I mean, I'm not like, I, I have enjoyed Bond films. You know, I like Casino Royale. I watched it one and a half times. You know, <laughs> I watched it at cinema, I really enjoyed it. And then watched it on TV and was just like, yeah. And then I got distracted and did something else. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I like them. I like them enough. I like Skyfall, and then people are like, "Well, that doesn't fit. It doesn't work." And you go, "Like, doesn't matter. It's James Bond." You know, I don't think they're as clever. Well, I don't think they're. They're not like. Not that it has to be highbrow, but they don't have to be dumb. And I don't think that the man from not not even Guy Ritchie's, but like the original series, the stuff that it was all based on. Um, we need to play a song. Okay. Um, but yeah, we'll come back in five minutes. Or however long, probably less than five minutes. Probably about three minutes fifty-nine, I reckon. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. I think we're back. We're back. We're back. Um, 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 right, we've been talking about what a sack of shit James Bond is, and now we're gonna. Uh, but okay, so it's interesting that he based that character on. 
the character from I think maybe as a starting point. But um, yeah, I don't think it was by the end. Yeah, maybe yeah. When he was writing it, he sort of I think mainly it's watching it. You go, I guess it's the watch that you took most inspiration from. Yeah, I catch it. But like, uh, I'd rather just think that. Do you know what? That's not even a thing that stands out in my mind about how about Blowout. No. You know, you know the thing I like most about Blowout? The gadgets. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable gadgetry. What an influence, even then, that those James Bond films had on that generation of filmmakers. How many musicians? Alice Cooper fucking references uh, James Bond in like the first five albums. They were like always like doing James Bond references. And you just think they loved them. It was a huge movie. Well, if you think about it, in terms of like action movies, that's what you got, you know. Yeah. Um, like, what what are some other action movies that were out around those those times? Well, I guess you'd have outside of like uh, cowboy films and war films, you'd have action and stuff like that, but not in the I guess not in that way that James Bond did with that kind of stunt work. <laughs> And when cowboy films were sort of like just, um, uh, when cinema just started and cowboy films were just starting out and um, uh, and up until quite, you know, recently, like cowboys were recent history. They were kind of like, they'd been around. They, they, I mean, they were, they'd died out. That sort of way of life had died out. But going from uh, New York to... Los An to Los Angeles or to California for the daylight, for the for the air quality and all that other stuff. And that's where they learned that the air quality was superior, where they could make films. Um, you know, people were on... <laughs> I know that they drove and stuff like that, but it was only a few years before that they were on covered wagons. Right, if you're watching... And also, if you're watching a Western from the 30s or 40s, that period is like 25, 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if um, and, and the thing is, if they'd have stayed in New York and made films in New York, you may not have even had like an obsession with the Western, because people actually had to travel on land through America to get to California, and it was that experience that led to that influence being on uh, the the you know the the film industry. And then when you're watching James Bond in the sixties, you're just in, you're in the midst of the Cold War. And it's kind of like it's being affected by what people are going through at that time. And that's why, like, the spy genre really took off and thrived. And I guess there's sort of, like, um, people try and make things more relevant. You know, like, oh, he's a newspaper mogul, a media mogul who's um, uh, trying to start a war so he can sell more newspapers. And you go, oh, that... I mean, that sounds like a second-tier Bond villain at the at best. Do you know what I mean? I guess the, the Cold War probably made everyone feel so powerless that it wasn't something that was happening with them involved. It people... wasn't more like the Second World War, where people were actually at war. So, so it probably like made sense that you wanted to watch films where you got the impression that, oh no, someone is fighting a war on behalf of, of the West or whatever. The well, point individuals and going oh yeah great having a dictator that had uh, access to a bomb that could wipe out humanity was not that it wasn't a stretch of the imagination hmm. the imagination was which foreign country are we going to stick him in this time right and um 
and that's that's but now that you know we're all completely fucked and there seems to be like other, you know it's like who should james bond be fighting now it should be kind of like twitter or um people that are anti-food banks do you know what i mean it's kind of like yeah, we, well, we've been quite, we're sort of bored by the fact that the world could end at any minute. And so we don't really think about it when we try and... We try and distract ourselves. With like, things that are more important. And so I guess James Bond does feel a bit irrelevant when you think about it in terms of that. Let's not talk about James Bond anymore. Um, tell me about um, what you thought about The Terminator. I thought that was quite interesting. I thought it was incredible. Incredible. And I, I think I disagree here because I watched... Although it might be getting on for eight or nine years ago, I saw Terminator 2 again at the cinema, and I was like, yeah, it was all right. And watching, and it's, I think it's kind of put me off the whole franchise that made me think I don't really like Terminator films. And watching this made me think, I love the Terminator. Mm. So, and like, and I also have made myself think of it as much more of a B-movie than it is. And it's either, it is expensive, or it looks incredible. They've, done su- they've either done such a good job on the model work I was trying to like look at it, going. I mean, what isn't exploding there? What? But the bit with a big lorry at the end explodes. You go. I mean, it looked great, and it's shot from all these different angles. And you're going. Well, I think they have. I think it is a big movie, and it feels big and huge and everything. And I really like the way that the plot happens almost in silence. There's no one explaining it to you really. It's just that these characters appear, and you have to figure out what their role is. And how they're all connected. But it's an action movie. And mm. that's technically what an action movie should be, where yeah. the actions, you know, uh, tell the story. And, and, uh, and something happens, and there's an action, and then there's a reaction. And like, so Terminator comes down, chases this woman, uh, Sarah Connor. Uh, Sarah Connor, uh, one of Sarah Connors gets shot. Sarah Connor sees it on the news. Then she gets scared. She get, goes and chases it. And all of that happens. You're right. There's no one explaining the plot and saying, this is what's happening. Because yeah. nobody really understands what's happening in the film. But it's really obvious to the viewer. And everything makes sense. It's logical, you know? The story itself is complicated. But it doesn't feel complicated because it's not got someone going, so what it is, is I'm from the future and so is he. But we're going back. Because in the future that hasn't happened yet, you're going to give birth to it's not that it does it through just yeah just through action and it's just really cleverly told and it makes you think what great kind of filmmaking it is that it's just all on screen and you've got this potentially complicated time travel story which is made really clear and you know i saw that film when i was 10 or something and i understood it and it's all just happening on screen and there's nothing about it which it all makes sense um, and no one's telling you things. It's all in action, and it's a real sort of spectacle. And it's even got things like when she's in the bar, and the bar's called oh the bar. I mean, this bar is called Technoir, and you go oh I guess that's sort of the genre of the film, yeah. and you go right, got it. So it's even like telling you these things about the film you're watching. Like we're trying to do like a noir film, but a Technoir film. <laughs> But it's sort of cyberpunk as well, isn't it? And it's like, um, I, I really, it's a cyberpunk slasher movie, is the thing. It's really straightforward. It's got a complicated plot, but it, in terms of what you actually see on, on screen, it's really straightforward. And it's not a million miles away, not a million miles away from the horror genre, 
it technically is a horror film, but because it's got the sci-fi elements, it feels like a sci-fi action film. But basically, it's a sl- it's a it's a it's a horror slasher film with yeah. a robot in it. And, it's the same um, genre as No Country for Old Men. Sure. <laughs> it's a technoir, No Country for Old Men. Um, but um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that your enjoyment of Terminator has to discount anything about Terminator Two. No, it didn't. It's just that I remember thinking. No, I think. I didn't not like Terminator 2, but what I'd noticed was I haven't really kept up with any of the sequels and I can't get excited about them. And it, it was just taking years to go go back to the original thing and going, oh, no, I love this. Yeah. You, well, know, but, you remember what you like about it. But the, but the, the reason for that is um, everything after Terminator 3, oh, including Terminator 3, is shit. Hmm. Whereas you watch Terminator and you go, this film's great. And then you watch Terminator 2 and you go, this film is uh, exhausting. It's incredible. It's action. It's not my favourite Arnold Schwarzenegger film. It's not my favourite action film. It's not my favourite science fiction film. That would be Predator, all three. But um, but Terminator 2, um, as a sequel to Terminator, those two films are absolutely perfect side by side. They're totally different from each other, but they do like a similar thing. And that I think just Terminator Two just leaves you absolutely exhausted. Especially I think the new the new version that they brought out on Blu-ray where he's sort of like touched up some of the special effects and they've kind of digitally put uh, Schwarzenegger's face on the stunt guy because a lot of the times it was really obvious. Uh, and it's still obvious because they haven't quite mapped it properly. But um, I think I, I'm just, I'm exactly like you, where you get kind of like terminated out, you know, and then you go back and you watch, um, like I said, I watched Terminator and Terminator 2 with someone that hadn't watched either of them before. So she didn't know there was like the twists. And she didn't She didn't know what was coming. And so when you watch the Terminator and you're just like oh god it's just a really well made brilliant thriller and then you watch Terminator 2 and you go it's huge it's just like it takes it takes that first film and then just like you know I don't I don't think they're not directly comparable either um, but um, but I'm like you where it's kind of like I would never really want to sit down and watch Terminator 2. I don't find it the most enjoyable film. I find it a bit preachy in places and hypocritical, but you can't deny how entertaining it is and how how good it is. But the first film, yeah, it's, it's like... But I enjoy it on a level where I've got a lot less expectations. Mm. I, might, well, I might watch Terminator 2 again, because it it's been... I'd, it made me think it must have been years since I watched the Terminator. But I remember, I remember Terminator 2 seeing that when it came out on video and being, thinking it was incredible. Just being, you know, this is like the best thing I've seen. And then being like, sort of slightly disappointed with it when I watched it last time. But I might watch it again, having just watched the Terminator with fresh eyes. I think they're, I think they're good to watch back to back. Because also, because there are differences. There are some films, I think Alien and Aliens... You shouldn't watch them back to back because they're so tonally different. Mm. But um, uh, and I think that Aliens always comes out a lot worse when you watch it directly after Alien. But yeah, if, you, if you give it some time, then um, Aliens is a, is a great, like the same with Terminator 2, it's a great non-stop juggernaut of a movie. 
but if you watch it next to Alien, it feels like, who's this been made for? Fucking 10-year-olds. I think you might be right, yeah. I haven't seen Aliens in years and years, and I came back, I was staying with my mate in Edinburgh uh, last year, year before, and he was watching, he had Aliens just on the TV, and when I came in, it was like 40 minutes from the end, and it's like, what are you watching? Oh, Aliens. I haven't watched this in years. And in my head, I was going, I like Alien. I'm not fussed about Aliens. And then got totally sucked into watching the last 40 minutes going, this is great. It's tense. Yeah. I I watched it with an ex-girlfriend. We were together at the time. And at the end of Aliens, um, we'd we'd been holding hands and our fingers were indented in the... (laughs) The nothing. Yeah. Like, um, Like my fingers were sort of... (laughs) <laughs> moulded around her fingers and her fingers moulded around mine. Like, we were so tense that we were, like, just holding our hands so tight. Yeah, it was, like, really... I think it's... I think there are circumstances... I think Alien is the best. But there are some circumstances in terms of timing and when you watch it where Aliens can be as good as Alien. But hands down, I think Alien is the best. Uh, any other things that you saw this week that you liked? I watched Equalizer 2, which is interesting because it's got um, Bill Pullman in it from Dinner. Oh. Your favourite. Is, 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 um, is Bill Pullman in Equalizer 1? No. Well, not that I remember. Well, I struggled oh, to remember Equalizer 1 when I was watching it. Is Equalizer 2 the one about the mural? No. no is there a not. mural in one of them? Someone painting a mural? Maybe that's in one. It wasn't in two. What Bill happens in Equalizer 2? Uh, Equalizer 2 is another one, like the first one, which is incredibly violent and sort of shockingly so for these days. Um, and it sort of feels like a bit dated in a way. So it feels like it's from a totally different era because it's so violent. Bill mm. Pullman is in it, but he, he, his character, it's weird that he even chose to do it because his character is so inconsequential throughout the film. He like pops up. It should have been like, it's weird that it's Bill Pullman because you go, this guy's going to have a big impact on the plot and just doesn't. It's just like, he's just such a supporting character. What's so the, he agreed to do it. What's the story? Oh, hang on. Equalizer 2 is the one where it's like really foggy at the end, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. They go off to like this, um, yeah, foggy town where he's from, where Robert McCall's from. Is it Edward Woodward that's in the original? Yeah, from the TV. Ed- so Edward Woodward is in... Um, the Equalizer TV, so it feels like it's a little bit of like it's a, it's a little bit of spin off of the TV series, yeah, and it's a little bit Death Wish, yes, exactly. But I don't remember the TV show being like that, and they're so violent, these movies. There's some great set pieces in it, but it's almost like unpleasantly, unpleasantly violent. <laughs> and then what was the other one you watched? American Psycho 2, American Psycho 2, which is. Uh, it's got no connection to the first one. It's obviously a completely different script that they've tied on to American Psycho. They would have changed... I've never thought about it until I read your tweet, but, like, they would have filmed it, and then they would have gone, well, this film is shit. It's like um, a um, uh, Cloverfield film, yes, where yes. they've gone, actually, if we call it American Psycho 2, at least we can shift some units based on name recognition. But it's yeah. got William Shatner in it, right? Yeah, William Shatner. It's, it's not a terrible film. It's just that they obviously had no faith in it. And it makes the film worse because it's like, no one's got any faith in this. If it had just been released as a black comedy with Mila Kunis and William Shatner, you'd be like, yeah, it's fine. You know, it's a, it's a two and a half, three star film at best, if that. 
but it's yeah. totally fine. It's like a black comedy. So even the tone of American Psycho and the sequel are different. It's just much more like a, a sort of regular black comedy. Yeah. But worth watching? Yeah, if you want. <laughs> sure. All right. And what have you seen this week, Nick? What have you been I a fan of? I can't remember if I talked about it, but the other week I saw No Way Out. Have you ever seen No Way Out? The Kevin Costner film. Oh, have I? Kevin Costner, Gene Hackman, Sean Young, uh, and uh, William Patton, Bill Patton. Maybe not, maybe not. And it's also got George DeZunder in it, who uh, is uh, Michael Douglas's best friend in Basic Instinct. Oh, who, right. made, who made a career of uh, being the lovable guy that gets killed in every film. And um, uh, he's, in, uh, he's in No Way Out. No Way Out is an absolute fucking banger of a movie. It's absolutely incredible. Early Kevin Costner. It's so tense. I was watching it in my living room and I was stood up pacing around because it was so <laughs> tense. I absolutely think No Way Out is incredible. It's also got like a... I think it must have been bigger. No one ever talks about No Way Out. I think it must have been bigger at the time because they spoof it in Hot Shots Part 2 where... <laughs> Um, there's the bit where Charlie Sheen um, is in the back of a limousine um, uh, having sex with a woman and the driver keeps kind of like looking at the mirror and that's from No Way Out. And so it's kind of like, I guess it was like this iconic scene in No Way Out that everyone talked about. But No Way Out was like 85, 86 and then Hot Shots 2 was like 91 or 92. So it's kind of like, it was like, Six years later, they're still thinking about this scene, and then nobody mentions it. Anyway, it's, just, it's such a good film. Gene Hackman's great in it. Uh, Kevin Costner's brilliant in it. Sean Young is... Right, so, so Sean Young and Kevin Costner are, uh, become a couple, and they're in love. And all of their scenes together are so real and naturalistic. And I think that you couldn't... Sean Young was incredible, right? And I think in that film, you couldn't have cast another actress in that part and got that got a performance as good as that. She is ab she, you just fall in love with her, and she's so real. She does a scene. It's one scene where she goes from happy to confused to scared to uh, sorry to crying to um, you know to terrified. Um, and she just goes through every single emotion and you watch it. And I think it's probably intercut with another scene. But on paper, it's one scene. They get back from holiday and they go through all of these things. And you go, she's, she absolutely nails it, you know. Um, and you, I, like I said, I think that you could have put like another actress in there and you would have seen them acting. But I think Sean Young is sort of a little bit crazy. And that comes across in her performance. She's kind of like... It just feels so real. She's she's brilliant. And then the other film I watched was The Lost World, Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah. Which um, I wanted to re-watch it because I really, I've seen Jurassic Park so many times and there's very little that you can do in terms of dino action if you, if you don't like the sequels that much. Um, I still hate it. I think this time I managed... I just want to put my finger on why I hate it. Um, and I think it's because it's just a deeply, deeply smug film. There you go. And the other film I watched was Lords of Illusions. Uh, uh, Clive Barker, uh, Scott Bakula from uh, Quantum Mate. 
I remember this being advertised on the back of comic books. Yeah, right. That's exactly what I I remember it advertised on the back of comic books, right, from the 90s. And I remember it coming out and being really excited that Scott Bakula was making something. And then I've not seen it since this week, until this week. I've never seen it. Um, it's such a it's such a deeply bizarre and unpleasant film. Like, to the point where it's Clive Barker, so you go, yeah, you're expecting it. But to the point that one of the one of the demons in it has got, like, an arsehole on his forehead, and you kind of, like, go, I mean, who wants to look at that? Do you know what I mean? It's, like, fucking hell. And it is an arsehole. It's not, it could be nothing other than an arsehole. There's just this demon that's going around with this arsehole on his forehead. And it's just kind of like, you go, why? Who's this for? Like, every single moment of the film is... The practical effects are brilliant. Scott Bakula's great. Um, every single uh, step of the film is one of the most deeply unpleasant films you've ever seen. Um, but do you know what? It was different from what I've spent 25 years imagining it was. Right. And, you couldn't, um, in your imagination, imagine a man with an arsehole in his head. No! Fucking hell! No one's expecting that. But also, um, it, was, uh, it, was, um, it, was, it was entertaining for what it was. I think it's on Netflix, but um, it is also deeply, deeply <laughs> rubbish. Um, all right, we're going to do some quick, quickly do a few fan mails, and then uh, we'll bring our guest on. We'll get, a, we'll get a song. I don't know. <laughs> you don't need to know the format. <laughs> all right, Brian Johnson, take it away. Dear boys and girls, where is this an appropriate time of day? So, I mean, I've spelled that wrong. Dear boys. When is it an appropriate time of day to have a little gin? I believe the Queen has a gin and Dubonnet before lunch. What is the earliest possible time for lunch, though, Shelley? Um, I think you can have lunch. Uh, to, to quote The Flash in one of the best bits of dialogue, what is brunch? Is it breakfast or is it lunch? I mean, queue up for an hour for what is essentially lunch. That's terrible. Oh, fuck off. Just fuck off. Fuck off. What, what did Joss Whedon add to the fucking Justice League? Some, um, some bad stand-up. Like, the idea of something that hasn't been tested out in a club. Barry Allen. Fucking, absolute fucking shit. Hello! You can drink gin whenever you like. I drink it. With me shreddies. Hello, I saw on Twitter that Tom Cruise is in town. When are you getting him on the show, Lee? I don't know. Uh, Natalie, when are you getting Tom Cruise on the show? I'd like your thoughts on Wesley Snipes, please. I've decided it's time for me to get into him. But which film would be a good one to start with? Uh, Wesley Snipes. I love Wesley Snipes. Um, uh, uh, is he in uh, Boiling Point with Dennis Hopper? He is, yeah. Uh, quite a good like action thriller dr- drama. Uh, then there's Passenger 57, White Men Can't Jump. To Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmore. Blade, Blade 2, maybe not Blade 3 because he hated making that film. Uh, Expendables 3, he's great. And of course, Demolition Man, which is an absolutely amazing Sylvester Stallone movie that Wesley Snipes steals off him. He steals it. Stallone is still great. It's a career best from Stallone, but it's absolutely robbed by Wesley Snipes. So those are some good ones to get you going. And then he's done a load of straight-to-DVD stuff recently, which... um, I think was paying for his tax problem. Hello, I'm looking for something to watch on Netflix. I've just finished Money Heist and rewatched Narcos, both of which are very much my cup of tea. I need something else, though. Help, Melania. Any any thoughts there, Nat? 
that, the um, what's that film uh, with uh, Benicio del Toro, Sicario? I think is very is it, if you like narcos and that. And, that. and if you like if you like films about heists, you should definitely check out Hurricane Heist. It's a five star movie, absolutely jaw dropping from beginning to end. You'll love it. In no way is it a waste of two hours of your life. Um, Hi, lovely boys. I'm planning to uh, do a staycation in the next few weeks. Any suggestions on where to go? Thanks, Charlie. That's a great job, Charlie. I stayed home, don't you, you daft cunt? Hi, Nick and Nat. I started watching Money Heist. It's so good. I've done this one. What? What? I really love getting the stuff. Have you ever watched it? I really no, actually, a lot of people have recommended Money Heist. I don't want to watch it. Eat, sleep. Okay, right. Oh, that's it. We've done our five We've done our film. Is that it? Oh, well, please write in, because we do really love it. <laughs> There's another one there. No. Dear Nick and Nat, I recently watched the Divergent series. What is that? 147, it's got the thing. Can you see it? No, I can't see it. You read it out. Dear Nick and Nat, I recently watched the Divergent series, and it's so shit. Have you seen it? What are your thoughts on it? Not seen it. Cheers, Helen. I'm afraid I haven't seen it. Was that, is that like The Hunger Games or something, is it? I think it was, wasn't it? Wasn't there, like... Wasn't that one where they split the last book in two and then they didn't actually get to finish it off because no-one went to see the penultimate film? Okay. So they did sort of like they did book one, book two, and then the third book they split in half, and then they did part one. No one went to see it, and they're still talking about like maybe finishing it off on a TV show or something or Netflix. But um, I don't think it'll ever get finished. I think they'll all be too old by now. But I think it was like a Hunger Games type thing. Um, all right, okay. Um, well, that was great. Uh, if you've got any questions or suggestions, uh, uh, send in. Uh, do you know what? Enough people have mentioned Money Heist, so I might as well watch Money Heist. But if you haven't seen The Sinner, I'd still watch The Sinner. I think that's great. Got three seasons of that. That's brilliant. Uh, okay, career best from Bill Pullman as well. All right, let's play a song.
Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. We're back in the studio. We're not in the studio. We're in our living rooms. And uh, my name is uh, Nick. I've done that at the beginning of the show. My name's Nick. This is Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're still listening to fan club. We're joined now by Chris Stark, who uh, has got a book out. Um, Hello, Chris. How are you doing? Yes, lads. Cheers for having me on. You're in in Bath. I'm in Bath and I'm loving it. Do you know what it is? I had um, a couple of days where uh, I just just wanted to escape somewhere. And um, so this is my little holiday, really. I've just come here for a little holiday. I'm kind of, you know, drinking from about two in the afternoon. Um, It's beautiful weather. Bath is stunning. Are you on your Um, own? So, yeah, good times. Are you on your own? I'm here with my family, and we just had a little newborn baby as well, so I'm in this really nice hotel and just annoying everyone with a newborn baby, but <laughs> I, like to, I like to think it's sharing the experience. How old is your baby? About four weeks now. Wow. So, yeah, really need a beer, you know. Yeah, I've got so many friends that have had kids, and even my sister had a kid just before lockdown, but I've got so many friends that have had kids during lockdown, and you just think, fuck, I mean, the timing. Yeah, mate, it, it wasn't it wasn't timed like this the conception wasn't planned as a sort of you know we need something to do in lockdown (laughs) no of course not (laughs) it would be amazing forethought wouldn't it it about it would have been about bonfire night when it was conceived so that's about nine months this is interesting do you know what there's i mean there's the obvious jokes that we can do there um but do you know what, boys? I've not actually thought about the date of conception yet. It's a really funny one. Like I've been speaking about my little baby a lot, and obviously I'm, you know, super proud. But yeah, I haven't actually tried to work out the dates on it all yet. So, so cheers for that. That'll be today's, uh, be today's sort of mission. I was because I was born in the first of October, which means that it must have been like really cold January. <laughs> You're onto something here, aren't you? Like we don't celebrate the conception enough. Considering yeah. that was, you know, the beautiful moment, it really, there's anniversaries for everything. Birth, death, wedding anniversaries, everything. You're right. We should be celebrating the conception once a year. Once um, a year, I think about the time that my father put his penis inside my mother's vagina and conceived me. And I, I spent an hour or so thinking about that, which is longer than the event. But uh, I think it's important. <laughs> I think it's important. <laughs> Um, speaking of conceiving something, uh, you've, you've written a book, haven't you? Have oh, yeah, that's it. a wonderful way of putting it. Yeah, to be honest with you, it's something that it's been a couple of years uh, in the making. I've managed to miss pretty much every deadline going. The lads who I originally sold this idea to, um, I've put him through hell, um, but it's it's finally made, and it's just. It's it's almost um, a sad coincidence that this book has finally managed to uh, be conceived, if you will, uh, at a time where, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about how people will enjoy university and uh, what it's going to be like for students. But yeah, I'm really proud of it. I've never done anything like this before. And and um, and it's been fun. It's been it's, it's been a nice project to be involved in. A cookery book for students. Mate, I'm not a chef. Here's the thing. I when I went to uni, I, uh, I and, and this is what I love about it. I've somehow managed to convince people to publish a cookbook for me. Uh, when you know I'm not a chef, 
Uh, I've managed to get one of the world's greatest chefs, Tom Kerridge, to give it sort of his endorsement. And, and I'm just, I'm, I'm so proud to be part of this world. But what it was, was uh, when I went to uni, I, I got a student cookbook. And I remember turning up at uni, I couldn't cook anything. And, you know, I, I, I had horrendous experiences. I, I would put the pasta, one of, one of the stories with this was I put pasta straight in a kettle on the thinking that it would cut out the middleman and cut the pasta quicker. And I remember destroying this kettle and it just wasn't for me. I found the student kitchen really intimidating. And, and actually since then cooking's become like a real passion and, and I really enjoy it. And it's my sort of chill time. So I feel like I'm completing the circle with this book. I went to uni, couldn't cook a thing. I got given a student cookbook from my, from my gran and it was kind of a, a nice gift and now I want to make that student cookbook. So I've given it a go. Great. What I, know, I, I no think it's important. I know I lived with, I uh, lived in a house of four. I, I've always liked cooking, but my, the people that I lived with couldn't, they couldn't cook. And so we had one guy that lived with us uh, called uh, Joe. Joe. His name was Joe King, but I don't know if you're allowed to say it, but his name is actually <laughs> Joe King. And... Um, uh, what he would what we'd do is we'd go to the kitchen and we'd find these pans and they would have pasta that had been burnt black onto the bottom of the pan. And, they'd have to sort of like, and we were just like, how the fuck is he doing that? We, don't, we couldn't understand how he was doing it. And then one day he came into the living room and this was just as we were doing our dissertations. And he came into the living room and he, and he showed me the pan and he says, is this too much pasta? And I just touched the pan to look at it. And it had been on the hate for like 10 minutes and my hand stuck to the bottom of the pan no. and it was like a cartoon where I had to like pick my fingers off one by one off this pan, <laughs> this pan. and he just looked at me with the fucking dead eyes of a fucking psychopath and he said oh yeah don't touch that it's hot right after the event <laughs> right and I took it off and then my hand got all blistered up I had to write my dissertation with blisters on my hand and um uh, and but we found out why the fuck, why the pasta was sticking to the bottom of the pan was because he wasn't putting water in first. Yeah. He was just putting the pasta but here's in. Here's the thing, right? If you're lucky enough to learn all this stuff at school, great. And I, I actually think a lot of schools have got a lot better with this sort of thing. But it was a whole new world for me. And, and uh, it, it's, been a, it's been a bit of a, a project, this. And I, I worked with a chef who kind of... Because my concern was if you write a cookbook that you're going to put some recipes out there and, and kill people you know and and if it goes wrong and so i worked with this chef and it's been such a good experience because you know i rushed to get my dissertation out and and i i you know it was a real blagging sort of job and whereas i feel like this is now my real dissertation and i feel like if my uni ever wanted to be associated with me with anything i'm hoping it will be this you know because it's uh it's i'm i'm sort of strangely proud of it and uh it's probably better than my dissertation, I would say. But that's really interesting because when you're at school, you tend to sort of like learn all of these things which you don't really, that don't really come into play a lot later. It's true. And, and, and home economics was always kind of like, well, you can do that or you can do tech, right? Mm. But I've needed to eat at least once every day for my entire life. And I have never built a tie rack since I was 16. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Yeah, come on. But this is the classic thing, isn't it? Is when you look at what you learn at school. Like, I wish someone had taught me what a mortgage was properly. I wish someone had told me that when I started DJing that. You know, if you get a train somewhere, it can be, you know, you can work it out against your tax and things like that. No, I didn't know any of this. Like, like genuine life lessons. Um, and I'm sure you boys have got loads of them where, you know, it, it, you figure it all out for yourself. Mm. And I think this, I do think this student cookbook, right? I When we started this little project, I had to look in, um, I went to a bookshop and just looked at what other student cookbooks were out there. And I just found that they were, they're so kind of like old school and incredibly patronizing and and a lot of the time not written clearly by anyone that's been to a university in sort of the last 20 years and uh we just thought it was a good opportunity to kind of make something new and current and talk about uni as it is now and yeah mm -hmm. i hope i hope i hope it sort of is just like a nice little gift for people that are going to uni that's kind of my aim with it you know what no one no one might read it that's that's and then at the very least i can say you know i've written a book and i can have it there my mum can be really happy well you've been on a few radio now talking about it so the chances that no one reads it is impossible um, <laughs> but um on your, in your on your blurb you talk about like doing uh <laughs> doing cheese tasties with the taster on its side um uh and i just just a tip is that if you use pita bread, you don't need to turn the toaster on its side. You can just fill that with a little bit of cheese, not too much. I've so never even bread. thought of that. Um, and it's all self-contained. It's fine. You're amazing. So, so what That's do you mean? Fair. So you cut it open, stuff the pita, and yeah. then put that in the toaster, and just yeah. Well, that's genius. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've never even thought of that. Yeah, but I'm almost forty, so it's fine. Um, so your your book is called. Eat, sleep, zoom, reheat, right? It was at one stage called uh, eat, sleep, mm, crave, yeah. reheat, right? So it's been in so much, it's, it's been in production. Yeah, which I, I... Go for it. Yeah, so, so a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago when we started this, it was, that's what it was called. It sadly got released at a time where COVID is, is changing everything for students and freshies is going to be all a bit weird this year. So we just wanted to make something which kind of reflected what was going on. And it was either change the title completely or change one word. And I was a fan of just changing one word. So that's what's happened here, lads. I see when I read it and then I said, I saw it said rave in the press release, I thought that maybe the word Zoom was the new term for rave. That what, that's what all the young people are saying. And I didn't oh. associate it with Zoom calls at all. Like, we're on Zoom now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. But also, mate, like, life moves on so quickly. Like, like we're on Zoom right now. I, I'd never done a Zoom call until this whole COVID time. And, and I think we'll all, you know, hopefully not be Zooming, for want of a better phrase. Um, you know, for, for long periods of time in the future. Um, but yeah, you are right. It's, um, it, it, it doesn't quite work with the rhyme. On a technical point of view, it doesn't quite work. However, just go with it. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> criticising. I'm not criticising. I think you've done a good job. I think that, yeah, it's relevant. It's relevant to Zoom calls right now, but once we're all out of uh, Zoom calls, you can also get away with it. Yeah. Like the new dance craze. That everyone, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Did you do house party when we first started? 
Yeah, that started. But then the notifications were so annoying that you ended up turning it off, didn't you? But um, you are right. I mean, Zooming, I've not looked it up in the Urban Dictionary as well. So it's either another phrase for raving or, you know, but then every word is on the Urban Dictionary, isn't it? I mean, like literally every word has a sexual meaning on the Urban Dictionary. Great, isn't it? (laughs) Great. Well, look, so you're because you're you're known as being on Radio One, and and so we assume that you're you're very much down with all the youth culture of of the modern day students going to university now. Is that true? Do you feel like you're in touch? Well, I don't know. I think this year's I think this year's weird. I think a lot of students have been screwed over by you know results that weren't fair. I think um, I think unis you know normally round about this time of year we're all looking forward to kind of freshers and um you know for me personally you go to a lot of unis and you dj at a lot of unis and it and it's really good fun and and i you know i that's not happening the same this year so i think this year for want of a better one and um uh hopefully still exciting for for students and i just i just hope that they they still get the full experience that everyone else would get but do you know what? Maybe different is good. Maybe it's good to switch it up for, for this year. The students coming into it, maybe there's a different focus and that, that doesn't necessarily mean it's got to be worse. It's just going to be massively different. So I don't that, know. I don't know how this year is going to play out for students arriving at uni because no one does. That's the thing though. I've got like, I've got, I've got friends with like kids uh, that are just, that should be going to school or that should have been at school. And they were kind of like going, but they're not having the upbringing that I'm, that I had. And you go, well, no, they're having their upbringing. I mean, it's different. You know, we're going through a patch in time where things are different and it will be unique for them. It doesn't yeah. have to be the same and it doesn't have to be worse. It's just different. It's different and, and yeah, and unique. And I really hope, uh, look, I really hope for, you know, all students starting this year that they're excited. They've had to deal with enough with everything that's happened with results. I hope that they can go to uni. I hope it can all be figured out that everyone is as safe as possible. And, you know, I hope people are excited about going to uni and making new friends and, and you know, turning up on that first day with your car loaded up with, with all sorts of crap, loads of your mum's food and everything like that. And then, uh, yeah, I hope people just really enjoy their time at uni. I had the, I had the best time at uni. I don't know if you lads went, went to uni. Yeah. Um, but for me personally, at Southampton Uni, I, I had the best time. And Where did you go? The other thing with this book, in a weird kind of way, it was, it was, it was, it was emotional dedicating it to my old halls bar. And, and it really got me thinking about the, the great times I had at uni. It, it's such a special time. Which uni did you go to? So I went to Southampton Uni. Oh, I went to Winchester. Thing. I went to Winchester. Oh, so you're a real like, artsy person, are you? Or are you a teacher? No, we went to the we went to King Alfred, which was affiliated with Southampton, and we used to go down right. to Southampton for two pounds fifty on the train at the weekend because <laughs> Winchester was so small that Southampton was kind of like the nearest thing to do that was a bit more fun. But yeah, that yeah, was great. Uh, yeah, I, I get that. I love yeah. it. I, I had the best time, and I, I had the best time, and. It's been fun kind of reminiscing and all that. I tried to put in as many stories as possible and um, it makes you remember just some of the stupid stuff you did. And for me, it was like, it's where I started with radio and student radio and I had such good times. And yeah, it's uh, 
maybe I'm getting emotional because I've had a beer, but it was fun doing the book just just for the kind of like thinking about all the good times that, that I had at uni. Mm-hmm. What was your journey then from the radio to Radio 1? Say that again, mate. What, what was your journey then from doing student radio to Radio 1? How did that happen? So I, so I, my first experience of radio was actually I got involved in hospital radio at uh, Northwick Park Hospital, which was a bit of an odd one because the radio station back then was right next to the morgue in Northwick Park Hospital. So you'd you'd be uh, doing a radio show and it didn't really feel like many people were listening and you sort of went around the wards to collect requests and you'd tune in their radios for them to basically force them to listen. But it was my first experience. I loved it. So by the time I got to university and starting student radio, for me, that felt like starting on Radio 1. There was this studio. It was getting played out in the cafe and outside the students' union. So for me, it suddenly felt like my audience, my audience. Um, it suddenly felt like people listening. It was, you know, in the, in the high in the high single figures all of a sudden and and that changed everything and uh-huh. and then really from student radio to radio one it it's never felt massively different in that radio was just loads of fun and we had, we had really fun ideas and and a lot of those ideas are kind of the ones that you carry through to to radio one or, or like you guys like we've all had the same journey which is essentially loving radio and um and just wanting to do anything we can to try and you know keep doing it and stay in a job and for me personally i i did everything at radio one from answering i used to answer the phones for the sunday surgery as it was known then and i'd come in and do that and i was just i, I was just trying anything to get into the building and because i was dj night clubs i'd met scott um through through that and he was coming me with a demo and I started doing little bits on commercial radio. Uh, and then there was just this, I was just really lucky that the boss of Radio 1 heard something I did on Scott's show and was just a bit intrigued by me, so sort of invited me in. And then they just started supporting me a lot more. And then eventually the show, and the second I got into that building, I just didn't want to leave. So I just did everything I can to, to just try and build it up from there. It's Guys, it's, I've totally blagged it the whole thing but then haven't we all like well, this is just what we do isn't well, it sort of because it's almost like the the mythology that's around you is almost that you are kind of scott mills's mate but it does show that you were kind of working but he is my mate working yeah no but you have been working hard right so it isn't yeah of course yeah on one I mean, hand it's good to say you blagged it but the truth not is coincidence you've hard. yeah <laughs> you've worked hard to get where you are yeah i get you um I, I always remember when I started on that show, it was always like, because I, I am, you know, me and Scott are genuinely best mates. And, and I remember when I started on the show, they made a real big thing of keep, I remember the producer always saying like, we're, we're going to keep calling you Scott's mate because it gives you a reason to be there. Otherwise it's a bit like, well, who's this tosser who's just turned up? And, and weirdly, because, because of that, I kind of felt like I was always a bit of an underdog and really if i always felt like people sort of supported me and wanted me to do well with this job because i was never forced on them i know it sounds a bit odd that but i was always just someone hanging around the studios but yeah the truth is i'm a radio nerd and i really really wanted to be on radio one that was just a big aim of mine and you know i did everything I, i could to try and make the best of every opportunity i had but 
the truth of this situation also is Scott is one of one of my best mates and you know is my best mate and I do think we've got a you know very special thing that w we've always had going on because it's it's real and also I always think you can tell it a mile off I think there's enough radio shows where people are kind of forced together and I think the difference with me and Scott and I think why the show does well is because it's truthful and it, it you know we we're not just we're, we're not just thrown together you know we're mates and i think mm -hmm. listeners aren't stupid and, and they they see through that sort of thing a lot of the time yeah so when like, Does that answer it i'm sorry it's a no, really no. long answer <laughs> no, that's good that's good that's exactly what you want to hear so it wasn't like yeah because it's almost like the impression you get is almost that you have sort of blagged it all but i like the idea that you have just been trying to get in the radio for so long and you've now achieved that right you're now now radio one yeah i think it's i think it's a happy I'm, yeah well yeah like madness but i um yeah i i get it i i, I kind of get that i get that perception of it but it's also been quite you know i've been there a while and i've learned a lot and uh and i'd like to think that i've changed a lot as well and um and yeah and actually true truthfully i've always had imposter syndrome with radio i've never felt like i, I deserve to be there i've always like being real, I've always had that. Um, and it's only really in the last year or two that I've kind of started to feel that I should think differently about that. And I should be a bit prouder of what I've done and, and what I've achieved there because I knew it was something I always wanted to do. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if that's just me being pessimistic or I don't know if that's that's me. Um, it, is, it might just be a little flaw in me that I just... Yeah. It, but I think especially all of us, I, don't, I, th I do think sometimes we don't put enough value on, on what we do when, we, when we're all doing something that we love. I mean, what I we all that, do with this, it's fun and, and we should value ourselves a bit more. Yeah, I think a lot of people have imposter syndrome. I mean, we come from doing stand-up comedy and a lot of, a lot of comedians. Mate, I've seen you. It's, it, this is the crazy thing. Like, I saw you. I, it's, it's, it really bothers me because I'm trying to work out where it was. I'm even tempted to say it was Southampton Uni or one of those nights there. I've been trying to figure it out. No, I doubt it. I don't think I've gigged in Southampton. Um, oh, well, you may have then. I don't know. I've been gigging for like mm, 14 years, maybe, something like that. Um, but when you, get to, when you get to that point, you know, I've worked with, I've done sitcoms and I've worked with actors and, you know, and it's just kind of like, I think everyone feels sort of like there's this, um, if you dig a bit, you know, and you get to know people, I think everyone feels kind of like that they've sort of like blagged it. and that That's what I've noticed. It, it generally, I would say the good people, like the, the ones I actually respect, when you sit down and have a drink with them, you generally find out that they think like that. And it's actually the ones that aren't very good and the ones that are, I don't know, like, for me, like, not, maybe not so much the real deal. They're the ones that claim that that's not the case. And well, the ones there's that an element think, of cocky. The ones that think they yeah. deserve it. The ones that walk in and they think that they deserve it and there's that. So, but, you go, but, you know, you're not as good as some of the other people. It's kind of, it's kind of weird because you, you kind of need to pull a bit of confidence trick on yourself in order to do it in the first place but if you're not i don't know if you're yeah doing, if i you're think doing, comedians have it the hardest though no but i think if you're doing something close to what your dream job is then you should be lucky you should feel lucky you should be thankful every day that you're getting to do it because there's fucking there's enough people that are doing stuff that they absolutely hate 
Yeah, I like this. This this is good real talk. And and actually, it's this, it, I don't mean to bring it. I'm not trying to do some sort of cynical like bring it back to the book. But I do, I have had this sort of feeling in the last few months, especially where I'm a bit like, there's nothing stopping you. Like why why if you want to do something, just go and do it. You don't need to be really providing a reason much more than actually I wanted to do this and I'm going to make it happen. I've started. The big thing I've started doing is instead of just writing notes in my phone, things I want to do, I've started going, actually, right, who do I need to speak to to make this happen? Who do I need to like link up with? And it's actually quite a liberating attitude. And I was talking to Greg, Greg James about it at work, and he has exactly the same. And there just comes a point where you start to go, actually, the only person limiting you is, is yourself. I wanted to make a student cookbook, so I've just gone and done it. And, and I really quite like that that's the reason I've done it. You know, and actually I can say, I can try and pretend that I've got some kind of chefy skills or anything like that. I haven't. I'm just a guy that went to uni, got a student cookbook. It really stuck with me. And I think I can do a better job of making one. Um, so I've, that, I've done that. I will try to do that. But then that is also sort of like you've worked to, um, you've worked to get to a position and then you can kind of like go, right, I'm here now and I've got some options open to me. Uh, what, how can I use this to sort of like fulfill some goals, you know? And I think that uh, a lot of people out there don't really know where to begin. And I think the biggest thing that I learned when I first started was that you don't actually have to ask permission from anyone. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's totally it. And, and actually when you start really feeling like that, and it's hard to get to that stage, I think for anyone in any job, it's hard to, not feel that you're accountable to other people or that you know approval from other people but actually weirdly when you shake that off i think i think things get just a bit lighter and um god this is very deep guys (laughs) very deep but i think it's good and i think it's good i actually think it's really good for people to hear perhaps because i do think it doesn't matter kind of whether it's a book or a radio show or you can just limit yourself and i think what we're all trying to say here is is it's nice to kind of shake that off and actually just go and do things that you want to do life's short and, um, just go do it. because it was the one thing that no one else had to be involved in it i didn't have to get anyone else to help me you can go out and do that totally by yourself and it's one of the few things where you've got total autonomy of doing it and it's sort of whether you keep doing it and get better and better or learn if you've got any kind of skills to it whatsoever. Totally, totally. Lads, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hiding the way, and there, there's some guy with a... I'm not sure what that is. Like some, some kind of cage. Um, this sounds terrifying. <laughs> it's, it is. It looks it's kind of scary, by a man with a cage. I promise you, it's a nice hotel. It's <laughs> um, but yeah, cheers, lads. This has been um, a little bit like therapy today. I've quite, <laughs> quite enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you. Going back to the book, the, the recipes are good recipes, right? It's not that you're, it's not almost like, it's not a spoof cookbook. It's not like it's a student cookbook and here are some terrible recipes. Okay, we lost you for a second because um, you got caught by the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. But... <laughs> it did sound like that. I'm so sorry. So my battery ran out, so I just ran back to my room. Um, so you might have to deal with a crime baby at times where you won't have to deal with it. Um, I will. Um, no, but we're there for you emotionally. <laughs> yeah. so, all right. cool. um, so tell us a bit about your podcast that you do with uh, your Peter Crouch podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so 
what's to say really it's 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 much like this chat it's um uh you know we go to a pub um we we talk loosely about football but mainly it's just about kind of um goings on um so it's a hard one to undersell or oversell this but it's basically pub chat as a podcast with crouchy and um and i've i've been really surprised about how kind of how well received the podcast has been because there's no high art to it um you know we have some beers and we talk football and maybe that's enough you know maybe that's just what people are into maybe it doesn't need to be higher art than that you know no i think when it comes to i think when it comes to podcasts if you just keep it simple then uh one of the things we get about this is they say it's just like uh, listening to two of their friends in the pub talking about films and uh and you think that that's actually a bigger compliment really than yeah but that's how i listen to podcasts so for me podcasts are about podcasts are really special because it's very intimate the whole thing is is should sound like um you know, you're part of a conversation. I don't think it needs to be anything more than that. And I think what we've done with the Crouchy podcast, when they sort of first asked for me to get involved in it, um, I was just really keen that it wasn't another sports podcast per se. They wanted to give it a different name as well, but I managed to persuade them to just call it as people would call it in the pub. And uh, I think it's just snowballed into something really, um, really special, I think. It's very humbling, the message, messages that I get from people who, who DM and say they're having a bit of a kind of shitty time. Um, but the podcast has given them a little bit of kind of a relief. And I've tried to really, um, and the other lads have too, we've tried to make that a, a big part of the podcast that, you know, you, you feel like you're not alone on that front. You're part of a club. And, um, and we're not kind of shy about addressing that and and saying that it's kind of okay to feel like that and and you're not alone you know Mm -hmm. and how has um lockdown affected you recording it well it's it's like this lads it's uh we've been struggling with technology um not that you lads have been but oh we have (laughs) and uh, so we'll log on to zoom crouchy will appear upside down on it um but we did a podcast with um the last podcast we did was with Prince William and when we first recorded it we went to Kensington Palace and it was great and we did the podcast and it was, it was awesome but then lockdown happened and so we didn't release it because we just thought you know it was a very fast moving situation the world was changing and we uh, so we didn't release it and then it got to a point you know, a couple of weeks ago where we felt like we could and it was appropriate and the palace agreed. So what we did is we then had another catch up with Prince William, but it was on Zoom. So <laughs> it, we're in this bizarre situation where, you know, you talk about how we record the podcast differently. Well, that was an amazing podcast in total because it was half how we always do, which is just a load of beers and, and you know, all right. It was with Prince William, but it was a load of beers. And it was kind of like, we're all in person. But then we also had this great Zoom session where we recorded it and all these guys were panicking about the Wi-Fi and like the bizarrest thing is just watching Prince William connect to a Zoom call and being like, can you hear me? But the sound is not on and you're doing the whole like, press, press unmute, press the microphone. And like, it's just weird and wonderful. And 
Uh, it's a level of Zoom, isn't it? We're all doing the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so ups the stakes, like when you're going, well, let's hope Prince William's got good Wi-Fi. It doesn't mean he does. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't mean he does yeah. more than anyone else does. But isn't that a funny thought? Like, I've not really thought of that, that you imagine the palace Wi-Fi and what the password must be and all those sort of things. And no, it was, it was an amazing, it was an amazing experience, all that. And actually... The Zoom part of it was really to talk about the day out that we'd had at the Palace and, you know, and and the FA Cup that was coming up and he, he'd, he'd got the FA Cup renamed because you can do that when you're Royal um, around the Heads Up campaign, which is an amazing campaign. But, boys, it was so fun. Like, went to Kensington Palace, had a load of beers um, and it was just, you know, I was wildly... Un, uh, what's the phrase underdressed for the occasion right. uh, wearing clothes but just like I was told we were having drinks with him so I rocked up like you do when you go to the pub you know and it was a bit misjudged <laughs> you have a lad to sort of screw me over on that front um, but yeah, it was an amazing experience yeah <laughs> mate it was it's just a bizarre day and it was but it was a great experience and, and um, I think the podcast that's come from it is, is awesome but then there was there was loads of good moments that never made the podcast in the end as well. And um, yeah, he was, he was really good for coming on it, I think, and, and talking in the way he did. Did he give you a tour of the palace? No, but at one point, and this isn't in the podcast, but at one point we, we were, I was, I must've been about three or four beers in. Um, and it was amazing. <laughs> like he was there, with his, he had a couple of pints. Like we, I think we were told we we're going to have 40 minutes and it got to 40 minutes and this, one of his team was like, sir, your next appointment, he basically binned it off. And I think he was having a good time and it was a good chat. And, but anyway, we were about three or four beers in and I, I really needed a piss, like really needed a piss. And I'm one of those people that, you know, when it's on your mind, I can't, you can't move away from it then. And um, so I got to the bottom of this pint and I look back on it now and it, I think it will be one of my life's finest moments, but I looked up at him because he was sat in front of me and I said, uh, look, are we, are we going to be doing this? Are we doing this for a bit longer? Like, have I got time? Should I go for a quick piss now or are we finishing? Like, and he was like, well, you, you, you know, and the people behind him, it was amazing because it was like something that they hadn't have had to experience before. And then I went for a piss. I did. I, I, like, I thought, well, so I'm running around Kenston Palace trying to find where the toilet is. Um, and then there was someone in the toilet. So then I started panicking that they're going to think that I wasn't just gone for a, a piss, basically. Um, and then I came back up and uh, they were just sort of talking amongst themselves before we get going again. And they'd filled up the pint. And I just thought that was the, that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> they're very efficient. That's the royal touch. <laughs> <laughs> what's the yeah. what is the toilet like what's the to- is underwhelming it- very underwhelming i thought there'd be a little butler in there or something and there wasn't there it was um if anything it struggled to flush properly unbelievable I, I was surprised at that that's a shame just think about how many monarchs have struggled to flush that <laughs> toilet over the years. that's so true i can i can be there with like you know presidents and prime ministers and that who've gone there and gone god they need a new loo in there <laughs> that's underwhelming. I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> you think, I mean, you'd think it, I, I'm not expecting a sort of a Japanese toiler. Do you know no. what I mean? I'm not expecting that in a palace. 
And actually, it would be wrong for that to be in a palace. It would be a bit weird, a bit bit like seeing a lazy boy in the corner rather than a, a throne. Um, but I expected more than than that toilet as well. It should be like a throne. <laughs> it should be a throne, yeah. Yeah, yeah with a hole at the bottom. You're right. A disappointing visit to the to the palace. Oh well. Oh, no, no, no. It was it was a great. It was a great. It was a great. <laughs> yeah. Boys, I'm just I'm just trying to find you. Give me one sec. Sorry, my technology's not not amazing. Um, no, it was a great great experience. It was yeah. awesome. Tarnished, though, tarnished is what you're saying. It was a, it was a good time ruined by uh, poor facilities. It was a great chat, and, um, <laughs> and he he was brilliant. And that's the main thing. My it's minor quibble about the toilet. Shame about the toilet, though. <laughs> I'm just a shame. I have heard about when people have said the royal we, and I didn't really know what it was until now. Explains <laughs> <laughs> that. That does explain yeah. that. Um, so going what? back to the book, is it? Are the recipes like they are proper recipes, right? They're not. It's not a mm. cookbook, is it? It's like a proper. No, they're proper. They're proper recipes. I work with a chef called Nathan Eads, who's a mate of mine. And um, and we just we just uh, yeah. <laughs> Why do you laugh at that? <laughs> Say that again. Doesn't do anything else. No, not Nathan eats. It's like oh. um, eats. It's. Uh, oh, it's I was wondering what, what, what you meant. Um, no, it's uh, um, uh, no. They're all proper recipe. The only childish thing I would say about them is their names, which has basically been uh, I'd finish a chapter and then I would go through and think of any puns and I had such a great time doing it I really enjoyed coming up with the names for these recipes as well it was real sort of joy some of them are really reaching there's one that's uh, harder better pasta stronger and I just thought well, that's, that's, good. That's, that's ridiculous good. but then boys it's my book and I'll do what I want that's absolutely fine that's fine <laughs> Um, you went viral with your uh, interview with Mila Kunis when you did. Yeah, I mean that was huge, right? That went, that went, that went all over everywhere. Yeah, it it was surprising. I I did the the interview and I thought that I'd screwed it up. I actually phoned Scott afterwards and was like, "Mate, I'm so sorry. This is um, this is awful." Um, but then it went viral and. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of look back on it and go, I've never done anything like that before. And I think it, it was like we were talking earlier about, you know, having a bit of faith in yourself. It, it's funny that I thought I'd screwed it up by not doing a proper job of it. And actually it was the one thing that set it aside. Because mm -hmm. we've done, we've done interviews like that in the past and they are hard interviews. They're, they're horrible. Like the American PR people, you get seven minutes, you get taken in, you're not allowed to ask this, this, this. They're the worst. They're the horrendous places to have interviews. A lot of the time they don't want to be there. Um, most of the time, most of the time they don't want to be there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this was for, um, so this, uh, for, for anyone that doesn't know, you basically had to go and interview Mila Kunis about the film Oz the Great and Powerful. Yeah, really last minute. And, and you found out um, ten minutes before you had to see her. Yeah, it was all really last minute and ended up just talking about Watford Football Club and uh, Nando's and stuff like that. But I'm assuming that you hadn't, you hadn't even seen the film at that point. No, no, it was, <laughs> that's the thing. Like, I went in and I had a few questions in mind, but then I sort of forgot those. And uh, yeah, a bit of a mad one.
Um, have you seen it since? I have, yeah, yeah. It's all right. It's yeah. all right. It's all right. Oh, yeah, it's all right. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I did the naughty thing is, you know where you're meant to see the film as well? I've seen the trailer. And you know where you pretend to people that you've seen the, the film or you've read the book yeah. or that sort of thing? And um, you obviously haven't. But um, I, I always think you can learn enough from the trailer, you know. <laughs> probably true. It's probably true in that case. Okay, um, we're going to play a quick game with you, um, and uh, we're seeing where you rank on the listings. All right? Let's do it. Right, this is a game, Chris. It's called Better or Worse, and you have to say if the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely wow. on my own opinion. Let's okay. See. So starting off with Drew Barrymore. Okay. Is Catherine Zeta-Jones better or worse than Drew Barrymore? I'm kind. I'm so indifferent with both of them. I don't really know anything about them. It's a speed round. Better. So let's do this. Better worse. Better. She's worse. Tom oh. Jones. Tom <laughs> Jones. Better or worse than Catherine Zeta-Jones? Who? Better. Tom Jones. Tom Jones. Better. Better, yes. Tom Hiddleston. Better or worse than Tom Jones? Worse. 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 Tom Cruise. Better or worse than Tom Hiddleston? Better. Better. Uh... <laughs> uh, better. Better. Meryl Streep, better or worse than Tom Cruise? Better. I've got to say worse. Worse! <laughs> really? Well, it's not in terms of acting, just in terms of general vibe. Strange vibe. Um, <laughs> Bruce Lee, better or worse than Meryl Streep? Better. Yes, better. Michelle Pfeiffer, better or worse than Bruce Lee? Worse. Worse. It's a high card. Denzel Washington, better or worse than Michelle Pfeiffer? Better. Better, yes. Uh, David Hasselhoff, better or worse than Denzel Washington? Worse. Worse. John Travolta, better or worse than David Hasselhoff? Better. 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 Great. Very good. You scored an eight. You scored an eight. Oh, Chris, that's a good Uh, score. You're doing well. You scored an eight, which means that you're not as good as Jen Brister, Jason Manford, and Joey Skildani with ten. (laughs) Or Ken Cheng, Harry Hill, or Luke Morley with nine. But you're as good as Susie Dent, Magical Bones, and Samantha Morton with eight. And you're better than James King, Henry Normal, and Johnny Vegas with seven. Uh, (laughs) Absolutely fantastic. Well done there. Um, uh, so uh, it's been great to talk to you. Good luck with your book. Thank you so much, lads. And thanks, thanks for podcast. having me on. And I'm sorry I, I vanished, but please let me know if I can ever come back on or do anything for you guys. Um, no, you've done it's enough. Been a, it's been a shambles from my side. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, congratulations with your baby. And, Thank uh, you so much. Nick. Have, a good, have a good holiday. Yeah, Cheers, enjoy the rest of your holiday. Nice one. Right. So thanks, Chris Stark, for joining us. His book's out now. His podcast is out. And uh, uh, that's just right. We're wrapping up. So that just leaves uh, me to say uh, uh, goodbye from me. Uh, goodbye from Nathaniel. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Uh, yes. And uh, thank you for listening. Send in your fan mail. And uh, I hope you're all well. We're welcoming Chris Stark to the clubhouse. And now we're ending on a song. Thank you.